0: Hello, everyone. It's me, Kendra Arsno. Spectrum Magazine, SDA Kinship, along with yours truly, have come together to bring you a brand new podcast series called Imago Gay, where we bring you the latest on queer theology, studies, and a minority perspective on faith. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here with you all today. We have something in store that I think you all have been waiting for, which is we have the theology. I know you all have been eager to get into, well, what does the Bible say? And starting off this conversation, before we get into my conversation with Matthew Cortman, I have brought in Roxanne, a spiritual care provider today.
1: Hi, thank you for having me again. I'm so glad to have you on.
0: Uh, it's so convenient that you're right here in town. I can just, you know. <laughs> uh, But one thing I wanted to talk about, so the reason why I've been so reluctant to kind of take this theology approach is because I feel like it's so triggerable, right? In fact, we had watched a documentary not that long ago, Earth, on the Disney Channel, uh-huh. Will Smith. <laughs> yes. <laughs> His first trip is to a volcano and he goes with this blind man. And an interesting analogy about okay, what happens when you lose this part of you that you've relied on so heavily, your sight? And you have to now develop other parts of yourself in order to see the world. And as a church, I feel like, you know, theology is our sight. And we have failed to develop the other senses, you know, the smell and the sound and the feel, like all of these parts that are a part of our experience of living. So I kind of wanted to talk to you about there is a different approach to LGBTQ issues or just to theology or spirituality in general that a chaplain takes versus a pastor and maybe you can share with us some of those differences
1: yeah in spiritual care we're in tune with other things in terms of eyesight one thing that gets invited into the equation is the human being who is interpreting life through this religious lens When I was a resident, the first thing that my supervisor shared with us is it's really hard to get kicked out of the program. Really, the one cardinal rule is to not proselytize. And I understood that conceptually, but I think my whole life I have internalized this sense of purpose that my mission, my only purpose is to share the Word of God
0: and not even just like to share but to convert right to convert and, and it's yes. like that's such a it's even such a strong I, when i get a visual picture i picture just kind of wrestle people's minds to the ground right like it, it could be so violent in a way to think that your encounters with other people is about you have to somehow change the way that they view the world whether that's through your logic or through your testimony or through the strength of your conviction like it just seems like a lot of combativeness.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Essentially, yeah. that's what it turns into, right? A debate. Mm-hmm. Because for many years of my life, I attempted to convert people, right? And the best I have gotten is, that's a good argument. Now I'm mad at you.
0: Or, <laughs> you're really weird. I'm going to stop being your friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're really intense, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So this was new. This was new. And I think internally I had this question like, wait, how do I still fulfill my life's purpose? Yeah. In my new ministry, in this very secular space where I'm not allowed to proselytize. And so I think my ideas about what my mission were kind of began to shift in in this context. Now it was about empathy And about an authentic sense of connection, either with the divine, with the people around them, or within themselves. So rather than convincing somebody of how they should think, we're not so future-oriented, we're not so focused on what should be taking place, but we're definitely focused on the present, what is happening, and acknowledging that and validating that because that sense of awareness or to put it in more Christian terms, that confession, that, that being in that honest place is the only thing that will bring about a transformation. And not even that that's the goal. I think the goal is real connection, right? <laughs> but I think my true mission in life is to share the love of God and to introduce people to the God that I know, not so much by my words, but by how I show up. You know, the way that God showed up for me. Because that has been more powerful to me than any word spoken to me or any good argument. Yeah.
0: You know, today we are indulging the theological itch. I think it's important. I think, you know, if we have all of our senses, we should use them, right? But something I find so fascinating about today's conversation is we're asking the question, is God someone who can hold space for disagreement? And if he can, what does that look like? and if your own moral intuitions are pulling you in a direction where you feel more compassionate and you feel like you want to be more inclusive but you're looking at the scripture and you're seeing something different how do you deal with those types of cognitive dissonances like that is an important part of our theology and understanding god and so I just wanted to kind of just ease into this conversation, set the tone, and I hope that you really are enriched. I think Matthew has so many interesting perspectives to share biblically, and so if you have to take a break and come back at it, please do so, but do not miss the entirety of this episode. It is truly a gem. I am very excited to introduce my guest today, who is an author and theologian, Matthew Cortman, adjunct professor of biblical studies and theology at La Sierra University, a graduate of Yale Divinity School, and the author of a popular book called Saying No to God. He's also the creator of a new YouTube series called Bible Scholar Reacts, where he reacts to some popular Bible teachers and discusses some of the misinformation presented. We are going to be talking about his book, Saying No to God. We're also going to be looking specifically at a chapter in his book called Saying No to Homophobia. There are going to be several episodes on this, but we're just going to lay the groundwork.
2: Part of the problem with why these stories are so unknown is sometimes it's to do with other peripheral issues that we find disconcerting that are connected to them. So for example, the time that Moses argues with God, it says that God changed his mind. So often what ends up being the issue of debate is not, wait, why was Moses arguing with God? And it switches over to more of like some sort of um, existential question about the nature of God and, and, and can he change and those issues. But then it misses really, I would argue the more important, but also practical side of the question. So, you know, we're talking about oftentimes here, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, these are the huge heroes of faith, or even in Moses's case, the prophet par excellence, the model of what the great prophet is supposed to be. So when you see these heroes of faith, debating God, telling God, no, I won't, I don't want to go along with this, um, or defeating God, according to Genesis 32, you, uh, the, uh, the angel or the man or God, however you want to uh, take the mysterious figure, depending on which part of the Bible you're reading, when he declares to Jacob, uh, you have fought God and you have won. Mm. Uh, well, what do you do with that? What does that mean? It, it, it's certainly not fitting the mold that we expect of an authoritarian leader who tells us this is the way that it has to be. And there you go. Now accept it. Instead, right. there's a give and a take. And the question is, how is that possible? And how does that relate to us when we read things in the Bible? So, for example, we could look at Moses. Moses in Exodus 32 goes ahead and has God come to him. And he says, uh, it, God, just according to the story, just saw the Israelites had made a golden calf and he's very upset about it. And he tells Moses, uh, Leave me alone, don't interfere. Essentially, in the Hebrew, don't get away from me. Um, I am going to eliminate, murder, kill, destroy all of them, all the people I just saved from Egypt. And you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll make you a whole new nation. You didn't even like these people anyway. Um, I'll make you the new Abraham of a whole new generation, and you'll be the revered one. Moses responds to this and tells God, no, and Hmm. tells God, that what he's about to do will be called evil by the Egyptians. And then the narrator of the story of Exodus even describes it with the same word as as an evil, as a non-good act that God is about to do. And what's even more interesting is like some scholars like Christine Hayes and others who are looking at the Hebrew could argue that uh, it's possible that when God opens up the statement and says, get away from me, uh, Moses, that actually Moses had already implicitly tried to prevent God from doing this. So that the Mm. story is implying that Moses once attempted, God says, stop it. And Moses still pushes, continued with this uh, objection. No, he won't let his morality be silenced. No, God, this isn't right. But what makes it so fascinating is that where Moses ends up rooting his objections to God about this are all things that God affirms were what he taught Moses about himself in Exodus 34, two chapters later. Mm -hmm. And in Exodus 33, in the midst of God and Moses fighting with each other, it describes this as what it is like for Moses and God to speak to each other face to face as friends. So there's this Mm -hmm. idea or motif of friendship with the divine being something that is Linked with affirming God's true character, even in the face of God appearing to be something other,
0: and That's so interesting.
2: what? Yeah, and seems to affirm, in a sense, that God's character is something that you have to know so well that not even God Himself can shake your convictions about it.
0: I love that take, and I hope that we continue to like probe that and explore that. And I just wanted to bring up because as you're talking, I'm thinking. Even the fact when you're talking about like Moses is telling God, you know, don't do this, it will be perceived as an evil in the eyes of the Egyptians. And it's interesting how Moses has an eye kind of for how the community, a larger community that's not a part of his people, but maybe what we would consider the secular community would perceive God, right? And so he's trying to, he knows that God is there to be a witness of his of his goodness, of his glory, that the Israelites were supposed to be a larger witness to the world. And Moses is thinking on the level of like, how do we be a witness to those who are watching us, not necessarily what's like the sterile, pristine uh, version of righteousness that does away with wickedness and banishes it from the earth, right? And, you know, ways that we might typically associate what we think purity and justice is and those type of hyperbolic terms Moses is thinking how do we have a, a positive witness for those who are watching us and you don't often like we don't often think about how is our church how is the witness of our church coming off to the communities around us right
2: yeah and it's it's really interesting too that this way of talking about Exodus 32 uh, might sound Uh, edgy and absurd and strange to a bunch of Adventists listening or other Christians listening. And yet, um, this was the view of John Calvin. This was the view of Martin Luther. And this was Ellen White's own view that she wrote at length about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ellen White, like the others I mentioned, were very clear that they understood that God was not representing himself correctly, that he was misrepresenting himself purposefully to Moses, that he did not intend or want to kill the Israelites, that this was a test, as Ellen White calls it. And the test was to see if Moses was truly selfish or whether he was selfless. Would he want the power all to himself? Would he take control of things and throw the people under the bus? Remember, God had had made Moses' primary duty to uh, serve and guide the people. So in a sense this becomes the ultimate testing moment in which Moses now has to find out are you really going to lead the people to death? Moses would have stopped being a prophet. He would have lost mm. the job. He would have failed because he demonstrated he was not ready to lead a people he was only going to lead himself, you know. Moses is in a position where if he accepts what God said, he's a heretic. He mm. has stepped outside of God's favor. If he rejects what God says, he's faithful and true. And that's a paradox that I think has not been appreciated um, in our modern period and certainly not in the Adventist church for its application towards reading the Bible. Because if it's true for a direct interaction with God, that God can present himself in an opposite way. And one has to know God well enough to know how to interpret and respond to that. There's certainly applications there in regards to when we're reading Uh, human writers in scripture reflecting on God and how we interact with them? And the answer can't be, well, whatever it says you have to do, because that would mean the Bible has a standard that's higher than God himself did in the Bible. Hmm. So if you can argue with God in person, then it makes no sense for someone to say, you can't argue with the Bible, which is written by humans reflecting on their interactions with God.
0: And I really see, and I love these points, because I really see the argument that when we take to God and we argue with him, right, that we're arguing against these harsher realities, these harsher pictures of who God is, right? The The judge God, the God who's going to smash his people or, or smash the wrongdoers. And you see this even with Jesus, the Syrophoenician woman, right, where he he's with his disciples and she's asking for a blessing and he's like, I cannot give, you know, my bread to the dogs. It goes to the children. And he's purposely being severe with her. And in a way that is supposed to, uh, you know, test the disciples and say, do you agree? Do you think that I should be this harsh with her? Is that is that appropriate? Or is there compassion? And they failed the test, right? Uh, but she didn't. She saw past that moment of, severity and that judgment and still reach for the blessing that she saw someone behind him, right? That was really, that that was the true Jesus that she was meant to interact with. And I think that that's such an interesting concept that you don't hear talked about often.
2: No, and, and there's several points to that in particular that illustrate that the theme of fighting with God or arguing with God doesn't end when Jesus comes right? Sometimes you'll have liberal progressive Christians or Adventists who would be like, oh, I'm a red letter Christian. You know, the Old Testament, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not the best understanding. You know, I take Jesus as my center. And so there you go. Now I know that when Jesus says something in the red letters, that's my divine command theory. That's where I take my cue. And when you have stories like this of Jesus saying something, and then Jesus gets overturned by what a woman says. And I mean, like, we need to be as as honest as we can. Jesus, uh, and this is really emphasized in the uh, the version in Matthew's gospel, but when Jesus goes ahead and says, um, it's not fair for me to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs, he's making a logical argument. And it, it, it has a name, it's called the zero sum game. You're basically saying it can only go to one place. So either this or that. There is no middle ground. That's the claim, the whole point that he's saying. He's And he's saying it to a mother of a child who she's trying to ask for help for. And his basic argument is why you would not give the food meant for your sick daughter over to uh, the dogs instead of her. So how can you ask me to give it to you, a dog, as opposed to my own children? Shouldn't you know this logic already? Hmm. And it's meant to be a final argument. That's it. And her response, which is to one, be humble enough to accept the epithet of of dog, but also ingenious enough to throw it back in Jesus's face and say, well, you're actually illogical Jesus, because what you just said is not a zero sum game because the dogs do get crumbs. So Mm -hmm. you're wrong. It is not one or the other. It can be both. And the fact that Jesus, one, responds excitedly, happy, joyously. Tells us something's up, because I mean, like, if if there's anything that is a true statement about uh, Jewish pedagogy, it is that you don't give up an argument that easily, (laughs) right? So this is a rabbi. Jesus should know how to argue back and forth and be real to give up and be like, yeah, you know, like something's up. This this is not your typical you proved me wrong kind of situation. But then the other thing is. in Mark's gospel, he says, it's because you rejected what I said, because you said that everything is healed for you. In Matthew, Matthew changes Mark's words to be uh, what, uh, what great faith you have, that this rebuttal of me is a, a marked example of your faithfulness. But that faithfulness is not because she is trusting Jesus in the moment and his words to her but trusting something deeper in Jesus that's beyond his words, something she has to even reject to be faithful. And that just carries such a power to it because on the one hand, it tells you that, um, well, this is is the other thing, why I said Matthew is so important. Five chapters earlier, because that's Matthew 15, five chapters earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus had given the same instructions to his disciples. And Matthew wants us to see this parallel because in Matthew 10, he tells the disciples, you are not to go to the Gentiles. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And they don't argue with it. They accept this. So when the woman comes and she's crying out to him and he's ignoring her and then he's rejecting her, the disciples feel like we already know Jesus told us the same thing. This girl has just got to deal with it and go crawl back to her den with the other dogs. And so when he praises her at the end as faithful, it's a backslap to the disciples because they are not faithful. And that moment, the dog was faithful. She is the true disciple. The disciples with him did not reject what he said. And so because they did not say that, they are not the model examples of discipleship. So in Matthew's gospel, there is this really strong emphasis on just because Jesus said it doesn't make it right. Mm. Just because Jesus told you something doesn't mean your morality just disappears. You are still, even in the New Testament, even in the gospels, uh, Jesus is the true um, image of Yahweh. He's acting with the woman exactly like he acted with Moses. It has not changed. And that's also important that the early Christians continued to tell the story because it indicates, again, that they grasped this message, that if they were going to interact with Jesus's teachings, it wasn't just a top-down approach. Um, Paul himself, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 7 about Jesus's statement on divorce, um, you know, he says, oh, Jesus had this very strict saying. And then because he's in a new situation with Gentile Christians who, who uh, have spouses that are not in the same faith, he actually makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 7 that, well, I, not the Lord, give you this uh, idea that you should, uh, that you are, this is his exact words, you are not bound. You are not bound to the way Jesus gave that teaching. You can modify it. You can Mm. allow a divorce if the other person is desiring it, et cetera, et cetera. And it shows that early Christians were understanding God and Jesus Christ as uh, as God incarnate in a far different way than what our fundamentalist systems today would try to propose with a simple slogan of God said it, that settles it, now I have to believe it.
0: It is so interesting because as you're talking, I am thinking about you know, oftentimes how the LGBTQ community gets treated by the church is often like the Syrophoenician woman, right? It's it's this kind of like, you know, <laughs> that the help and the salvation that Jesus has to offer cannot be given to them. And what you see time and time again, is despite the church's poor treatment of the LGBTQ Ah, the LGBTQ community, the queer community, that they continue to reach past this kind of apparent epithet of calling them a dog, right? And reaching past that moment to see that Jesus is actually compassionate and desirous of their relationship. And they see past that. And, and that, that, that kind of work is commended as faith. Right to say, wow, what great faith you have that you still, despite the bad PR of the people who claim to know me, are giving you and the harsh treatment that you see me beyond this event. And I think for me, as I'm getting older, and life is hard, right? Adulting is hard. And, and I think that it is an act of faith to look beyond your circumstances to look beyond the failures to look beyond you know the nose <laughs> that you get in this life and say this might be a message or that 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 the world is giving me but this is not a reflection of how god thinks towards me or feels towards me and that does require a lot of faith
2: yeah it is one of those things that really helps you to take a step back and say faithfulness is not defined in scripture as mere obedience but faithfulness is an informed heartfelt obedience to what really matters it's mm. it's it's like it's like understanding when you're reading like a constitutional scholar who's looking at the constitution and goes well it doesn't explicitly say that these groups of people are covered but given the principles that this document espouses, how could it not cover them? Right? Mm-hmm. And these were some of the issues. And I think, it, you know, in legal scholarship, they have these debates of hermeneutics in regards to how do you interpret the, the Constitution? Should you be an originalist? Should you whatever it was that the founders expected uh, the Constitution to be? I mean, under those rules, if, if you were a true principled, you make no exceptions around for the constitution, you would be interpreting that and go like, let's say prior to the amendments that were added, uh, you know, after, during the reconstruction era, you could go ahead and say, oh, okay, well, the framers of the constitution did want slavery. And since the constitution doesn't outlaw slavery, then yeah, you know, I have to uphold an immoral belief because that's my job as opposed to say like a living document perspective, which would be, well, right, but the principles of the constitution completely make the idea of slavery insanity. It doesn't work. So regardless of how it was interpreted incorrectly or not, the principle should overpower whatever the application was in that day and time. And, you know, I think that that's an an interesting parallel to the problems we find with the Bible, which is uh, when a fundamentalist is attempting to read it, or someone with a fundamentalist perspective, they're expecting that whatever the people believed about these rules in ancient israel that their application of them is final as opposed to the rules and the principles undergirding those rules have more priority over the particular way in which someone understood or misunderstood them and if you if you are stuck in the past then you get that rigid perspective if your goal is how is the Holy Spirit speaking today? Or like in John's gospel, when Jesus says, the Holy Spirit has to be sent to you, it will guide you into all truth, all the truth that I could not yet reveal to you, right? That journey, that direction of revelation, that progressive uh, uh, revelation that uh, Adventists have talked about, progressive truth, that requires one to be having their eyes set on the right thing.
0: Right, right. I I just wonder how do... You know, I think a lot of our listeners, maybe, maybe not, right, are maybe battling with the sense of, you know, okay, I might morally feel this way, you know, LGBTQ rights and marriage, but my church is saying something different. Or I think that the church is correctly expositing scripture. And, and I think there's maybe this self-distrust that happens uh, to think that I might feel like the way that we're treating LGBTQ people is not right and or even the way that uh, it's impacting myself right there are people who are internalizing their own homophobia and so what how do you gain the courage to say you know, I am going to challenge God because I do think that this feels inhumane, or this doesn't feel compassionate or loving. When you have kind of this, um, maybe I don't want to say this indoctrination, but this kind of I don't say church policy or like this kind of rhetoric around church that says you can't trust yourself, you don't know what good or evil is, the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? And there's this. Kind of indoctrination that you have to receive what's here in scripture and you have to take it letter by letter because you don't have the capability of being able to discern what is good or evil. You've lost that capability with the fall. How do we begin to move beyond that type of thinking where we are able to like access moral sensibilities and reasoning and feel confident in a way where we can challenge God?
2: That is the doctrine of total depravity that Calvin uh, provided, this idea that humans are so depraved, that they are so sinful, that God looks at a human baby and wants to kill it because all he sees is a future murderer. And, you know, this view that Jonathan Edwards preached later, you know, in his fiery sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, and this idea that God hates, there's nothing good in humanity to the degree that even babies are sinful to such a degree they deserve eternal destruction if they're not baptized. Um, it is it is a view that fundamentally you cannot find in the Bible, right? I mean, even in the Bible, when like God goes ahead and says, you um, after the Genesis flood says, I'm never gonna destroy the world again. What does he say? He says, I'm not gonna destroy humans because their hearts are evil. Like it's not the reason God wants to destroy you. It's not that there's nothing he can, it's that, well, this is the situation and uh, I'm gonna work with it. You know, like this is just, it's such a, it's an unbiblical idea, but Calvin popularized it so much and it grew even beyond his expectations so much that what ends up happening is you have people who just fundamentally don't trust themselves, but this isn't because of the Bible. You know, when you look at scripture, I mean, just think logically, right? If it was the case that we were so sinful that, and C.S. Lewis pokes fun at this too, like you're so sinful that you can't know right from wrong. Why is the Bible showing us examples of anything, right? Like why wouldn't this just be a rule book, you know, just make it a, a quick this is this, 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 do that under these conditions. Don't do that. And you follow, you don't question. And yet we don't have that kind of a book, right? We have a book that even contradicts itself on purpose. Take Proverbs where you've got uh, one proverb that says in one line uh, to argue with a fool is to make yourself a fool. And then the next line goes, if you don't argue with a fool, then you're definitely a fool. And you're like, um, okay, God, oh. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Exactly. It's both a paradox, a contradiction, and it's also an invitation. Can you figure out when one of these two makes sense to apply, right? But that requires you, right? And I think that's the difference between, um, you know, obedience and knowledge and wisdom, right? Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's expected that you're wise enough to start using your own mind to apply when parts of the Bible matter and when parts of the Bible don't. In this case, this verse. In this case, this verse. And that's not something that's spelled out because it's intended for you to use your mind to figure that out. And with that said, think about a verse that lots of people love to quote when they're trying to defend an inerrant idea or the idea that they can't question God. They love to quote Malachi. And they love to quote where it says, you know, I, the Lord, I do not change. I'm not like man. I do not change. Okay. He doesn't change. So how can you argue? How can you? Okay. But then there's another thing that that suggests, right? That God is logical because in order to not change, what God is saying is he's consistent in order to be consistent. That means he doesn't contradict himself which means he's not arbitrary. If he's not arbitrary, then that means there are rules or principles or things that are definitive about his character that determine a predictability of what he does. Now, then there's another aspect, which is the word for change is applied to God on many occasions, including the Exodus 32 passage. But you can make a differentiation that in those cases, what changes is what God appears to do what God's end action is versus what God's statement was. But what is never changed is what God has affirmed to have always been in his character and what God ends up doing. So those things stay consistent. So what you can then understand that to be is, well, no matter what God might change or adapt in a situation for a testing purpose or for anything else, God remains consistent. And that's what Moses argues in Exodus 32 for, you know, you can't do this because this isn't you. And then God affirms it at the end. Yes, you were right. I am ever patient and gracious and loving and forgiving. So, With that said, I think one of the first things is to realize, look, the Bible is not given in a way that makes sense to say that you can't know right from wrong. I mean, in Luke's gospel, there is a time where some brother comes over to Jesus and says, I need you to help intervene because there is a dispute between me and my other brother. And uh, we're trying to divide our father's property according to the rules of the Torah. And he's not following the law. He's not doing it right. He's cheating me. I need you, Jesus, to step in and and tell him that. And Jesus' response is, so not what you would expect. That's why it probably never gets quoted in church too much. He replies back, who made me a divider or a judge over you? As if it's a rhetorical question. But the point is, he basically tells the man, go figure it out yourself. Don't look to me to decide this issue on the scripture. You have a brain go figure it out, right? That doesn't make sense with a total depravity view. Uh, C.S. Lewis basically argued that if it was true that we didn't have the ability to make sense of what is right and wrong, then not only is the Bible a completely worthless book to us in the way that it's written, uh, since it's not designed to just tell us what to do, but also how would we ever know that God was actually worthy of worship? Because if we don't know right and wrong, how can we recognize Jesus as true? In fact, how could we ever escape the sin against the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about if we're not able to know what is good or evil? Because what is the sin of the Holy Spirit? The fact that the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, you're Satan. What is the image of God? That's evil. And what is evil? That is good. Like Isaiah gives woes about for people who do that kind of thing. And so, you know, if it's true, we're totally depraved, there's no hope for us. We're never going to actually be able to see uh, whether God is true or not. So we've all sinned and apparently we're all lost. So it's a paradox that gives us no hope. And so I'd say to somebody who's like, I'm afraid to be able to use my mind. I'd be like, look, logic is from God. Now, that does not mean that the fall didn't affect our logic. It doesn't mean we might not be wrong, right? There are stories throughout the Bible, people who argue with God and they get it wrong. But the thing is, Moses wins his battles with God because he bases it in his knowledge of who God is. Jacob wins his battle because he trusts that when God promised him earlier in chapter 28, I will not forsake you until I have blessed you. That when God is telling him, wrestling with him, let me leave you, and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me, he's affirming, I don't believe you want to forsake me without giving me that blessing because that's what you promised. So the success that John Calvin or Luther or Ellen White would argue is that you win against God when what you won is exactly what God always told you was supposed to be the outcome. When you're basing it in God's character, then you win. When you're fighting what is God's character, seeking what is the fallen humanity within you, you lose. But then the issue then becomes more nuanced. It's not a question of, well, did you obey God or did you not, based off whatever words you heard or read. The issue is whether or not what you're arguing for does not uh, make sense in parallel with God's character or flow from it. Or does it flow from God's character? And the problem is when it comes to a lot of debates with LGBTQ or with any number of other topics, no one can get to that part of the conversation because where they get stuck on is, did you obey? Oh, you don't listen to the Bible. You don't care about the Bible. Oh, you don't want to do it. Well, I have my convictions. Well, and then they just talk past each other and nobody can have a conversation about, okay, so these are the facts. Now, where do you see the inconsistency with God's actual character of love?
0: Right. That's such a good point. I, th- I think this this doctrine of total depravity has really seeped in ways that I that I'm just now seeing. okay, like this has really become a part of our culture to not be able to have judgment, but like you said, there's so many contradictions in that. And so kind of to get into this chapter that you wrote on saying no to homophobia, Um, I'm going to read this quote that you quoted and I thought it was really interesting and I thought maybe you can break this down um, because it says neither Peter in his work to include Gentiles in the church nor the abolitionist in their campaign against slavery argued that their experience should take precedent over scripture but they both made the case that their experience should cause Christians to reconsider long-held interpretations of scripture today We are responsible for testing our beliefs in light of their outcomes, a duty in line with Jesus's teaching about trees and their fruit. And basically, you know what I see as a summary is like we have to understand the impact of our theological beliefs. But I thought maybe you could break that paragraph down. I thought it was so succinct.
2: Yeah, no, it's a it's a great paragraph. Um, I think if I remember right, I think it's it's Matthew Vines that. penned that from his book, God and the Gay Christian, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to double check. It's been a while since I, I I looked at the the quote at the top of the page. But um, what's really interesting here is, right, it's it, what he's trying to, to get the balance here of, which my book does too, is it's not the case that um, our experience is placed over scripture. And so, you know, if we experience something different than scripture, thus experience is correct, always, like a rule. But it's also not the case that experience is under Scripture and ignored, so such that whatever Scripture says, no matter our experience, it must be wrong. right? And even in the Bible, it explicitly teaches this with the story of Job, where Job's whole experience contradicts the book of Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic way of thinking that his friends uh, represent in the book. And he comes to recognize that, no, like I used to believe this way, but I'm now experiencing something that shouldn't have happened. So... It's not that he wants to say Deuteronomy is in scripture, but he is saying, hey, there's a huge asterisk here that was like not specified. And my experience is telling me we need to recognize its existence. Um, and his friends are unwilling to do that. His friends are unwilling to relinquish their belief in Deuteronomy as absolutely perfect and without need for an asterisk, uh, precisely because they are so unconvinced that experience can be of any use so what this quote is really getting at here is like the abolitionists didn't argue that you know slavery is wrong because we look at it and we dislike it and so because we just we look at dislike it that means it's wrong and so throw all the scriptures away that seem to promote slavery um what they did is they said well I know there's scriptures that promote slavery and allow for it, but I'm looking at slavery and this is horrible. So they go back to scripture and they find, well, wait a minute, the principles of the Bible or Jesus specifically have nothing to do with any congruency with slavery. So if God's character does not match the slavery, even if the Bible has verses supporting it, then it's not that I'm saying no to God. I'm saying that a better understanding of God's character leads me to see that God's ultimate purposes do not include slavery. Whereas the other groups who supported slavery were not interested in God's character. They were fine to equate God's character with whatever, um, you know, the, uh, the verses said that they wanted uh, to pick out. And so same thing in regards to Peter with the issue of circumcision or the inclusion of the Gentiles, You know, it's very similar, his story is very similar to what Adventists went through in regards to the shut door theory, where early Adventists were convinced that nobody outside the Millerites would ever accept the message and be saved. And so they didn't think there was a need for missionary work or or evangelizing beyond the Millerites. And then one person accidentally overheard it and said, oh, I really like this. And can I join? And it shattered them because everything that they thought they had interpreted in scripture as Adventists taught them there should never be any more people coming in because the door of probation was closed. Now, they had two choices that they could have followed back then, and it would have had huge consequences for the growth of the church. One was to say, absolutely, uh, this is a deceit from Satan, <laughs> this is this is a test of whether or not we truly know the door of probation was closed, mm. uh, and so we should reject this person and send them on their way, and 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 hold fast to the truth of the revealed light in the Bible that we've perceived. Or they could say, "Well, wait a minute, that shouldn't happen if we were right. Maybe we should have this experience drive us to go back to Scripture and re-examine whether we were right." or whether perhaps this indicates that we missed something. Uh, And I think it's that that experience of we're going back to scripture to re-examine what we were thinking that is what is missing so often in regards to many of today's hottest topics, especially LGBTQ Christianity, is that need to take a step back and say, hey, uh, what is in fact what the Bible says. What What is the truth about why we're having these debates? And it's not to drive us away from Scripture, have experience, supersede Scripture. It's to have our experiences that contradict Scripture drive us back to read Scripture closely.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, there's this website called uh, theunchangedmovement.com, and it's basically a, a website that highlights these stories of um, LGBTQ members who thought that they were supposed to be on a road towards heterosexuality, and they never arrived, right? And they remained unchanged in that type of, uh, you know, <laughs> in that uh, transformation that I think the church often sells. And so, you know, when it comes to allowing your experience, you know, I think it is important that I think theologically, we haven't taken that serious. We've just assumed these people are sinners and that their experiences uh, aren't valid, I think that has gaslit a lot of people. <laughs> um, and so to be in a place where we say, okay, where do we begin to really recognize these experiences as valid and consider it um, for how we do exegesis? And you make a really good point when it comes to the difference between how we treat divorce versus how we treat LGBTQ members. And you talk about in your book, you know, how divorce was not very common. And so there were never a lot of allowances, but like in the 2022 era, Divorce is incredibly common and people aren't getting kicked out because they are divorced. Can you talk a little bit about like how that experience that we're having in 2022 is actually driving the way the church begins to to look at membership in that sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it, it is the case that, for example, we have an, a Seventh-day Adventist handbook. And the handbooks have not been updated. At least I don't think they've updated them since I was reading them in, in school. And so if I'm right, uh, they still have uh, today, at least of this filming, they'll still have the rule about divorced couples who have not repented of remarrying after divorce uh, should be per- potentially left out of the church or they have a right to, to, to remove them. And that made sense to the writers of that handbook back then when they did it, I guess, the 50s, 60s, because it was to them a really important issue of holding fast to principles. I mean, let's face it, Jesus was very clear. Unless it's due to adultery, uh, sexual immorality, you cannot remarry. You you must remain married. You you can't escape it. The way Jesus' words are, are worded, uh, outside of Matthew, which is Mark and Luke and Paul. it's it, There isn't even an exception for, for sexual immorality. It, any reason you can't remarry. So, you know, the people writing the handbook were like, yes, you know, we're sticking to exactly what God said. And that's fine as long as it's a minority, because then you don't have to care about those experiences. You don't need to empathize. You don't need to think about, and it also doesn't affect your bottom line then when you have half of pastors getting divorced and half your congregation getting divorced and half of your potential converts getting okay well now let's see if we actually enforce the rule that's in our handbook and should be enforced but if we did we might actually like not support ourselves we might not get the tithe revenue we might you know also we're going to lose our pastoral staff and and now so many of the pastoral staff involved in the debate feel personally involved in it and have their own emotions with it now suddenly this is an issue we have to be empathetic about, like who would be so archaic as to, to not care about these things? Well, yeah, because they became accustomed about who these people were. Now, suddenly someone who got a divorce wasn't horrible or immoral, or I mean, got remarried after divorce isn't terrible. Now it just becomes, oh, okay, I understand it's something common. Okay. I, I can empathize with where this has happened either because I did it or I've worried about doing it or because I know people who've done it. And It's kind of similar, I guess you could say, to some of the early Christian debates about what to do with Christians who uh, cursed Jesus's name under Roman persecution. That was a huge debate for the first 300 years of the church or 400 years of the church where you had, you know, the Romans would persecute you and they really didn't want to kill you. So they would give you three opportunities if you were, if they knew you were a Christian, they give you three opportunities, curse Jesus's name and say that you're not a Christian and we'll let you walk out. Like, okay, you're not seditious, you're not a fanatic, you, you 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 have common sense, you can leave. If you're so silly, you don't value your life, then you're probably scary to our government. So we should probably make sure that we get rid of you. And uh, the majority of Christians curse Jesus's name. That's statistically true. Very few minority of radical fundies would be like, I'm gonna go to the lions and die. And I'm not trying to like make their death seem less important. Um, than they are. but in the church's history, we've often sung the praises of the people who were the fanatics that went to die more than we have the majority of Christians who saved their lives and continued on in the church. And the issue became that there were a number and then lots of pastors, bishops would would curse Jesus' name as well and still you know they come back to the church and say, we want forgiveness. Uh, or sometimes they'd even fake credentials that look like they had cursed Jesus's name without ever actually doing it. And they'd get like some pagan uh, shop to like create them for them. Uh, You know, they were creative back then as well. And the issue is that um, you would have some people who had confessed that they did not curse Jesus's name, but somehow they hadn't died. And now they are revered in the church because they went through the persecution, but they never died. And now they're looking at these people who didn't do what they did. And they're thinking, I don't want to forgive you. I don't want the church welcoming you back. You curse Jesus' name. You're done. And that was a large debate in the church. There was the Donatist controversy. And then there was, you know, even way back, you could look at Mark's gospel. Mark's own gospel could be, like one scholar, Donahue, argued this, that Mark's portrayal of Peter as being told, you know, are you a disciple of Jesus? And he's asked this, you know, three times, and he denies each time. But then in Mark's gospel, unlike any of the others, it says that that Peter cursed Jesus' name. In Matthew and Luke, they soften this, so he doesn't say that. But in Mark's version, he cursed Jesus' name. So Donahue and, and some who think like that, they argue, well, if that practice of deny Jesus three times and curse him was an early practice in persecution, Wow, then Mark might be very well trying to model Peter's betrayal and his forgiveness after the resurrection as a model for church leadership to treat other people. That look, Jesus forgave Peter, where he told told the women, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee, even Peter. You know, he's not lost, despite the fact that Jesus warned the disciples if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. If you don't affirm me, I will turn my back on you. And he doesn't. Jesus doesn't follow through with what Jesus told the disciples would happen on judgment day. Instead, Jesus goes, no, forgiveness is still. Uh, an option. I am a forgiving uh represent representative of God. So I think that that struggle over like what do we do with these people? They 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 you know, but here's the thing, too many Christians were doing it to the point that again, it made it so that people could feel like, well, how can we just turn our backs on half of the church? <laughs> we're going to we have to come up with some solutions here. It makes sense. And I think in that respect, um that parallels the issue with you know what you have in the case of divorce in our society but when it comes to lgbtq individuals right they're statistically always going to be a minority they're always going to be in that 2% bracket so it, the only reason we have more conversations is because there's more of a spotlight that's been placed on it there's more individuals drawing attention to to this group of people uh but there is not the same uh dynamics of leading individuals to be like oh we have to care about this just because they're in our church membership i mean maybe some churches will have more than you know a two percent statistic but most churches won't or they won't have any and to them it's like well it's not an it's not like we're going to suffer if we if we act this way it's not like we have anything to be empathetic about we might not even know any of these individuals or be able to see them as anything other than the stereotype i saw in a movie or something else and so that unfortunately just puts this into a a situation where when you look at the dynamics involved it's like well this isn't really fair you want to apply the issues of the handbook towards uh people who are gay in church membership but you wouldn't apply equally the issue of what it says about divorced couples and the reason isn't church uh ordination isn't church leadership or church rules it's your own discretion of what you think what rules are empathetically applied
0: exactly exactly and it's so interesting because you know, Gen Z and I was just doing this study the other day where like I think it was something around forty six percent of Gen Zers don't identify as heterosexual, right? So like they are they are identifying as being much more fluid in their sexuality, even much more fluid in their gender expression. I think the another statistic was like, you know, how many of you exclusively shop in your specific gender? And it was something like 25 percent right so everyone is dabbling with different types of expressionism and we don't when we talk about the longevity of the church the lgbtq and those who identify or at least are allies to this um are becoming a, a majority voice and i think it is becoming to the point where it can't be ignored um if we want to see the the growth or the the church to continue right? Into the next generation. So it's getting to that point where they have to listen, but I don't know if they will, you know, I
2: think part of the issue too, is like with those statistics, which I've, I've, I've looked at before is that I, I don't, I don't trust them very well because I think that they're a representation of the fact that queer theory hasn't been taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And, And so like queer theory draws attention, you know, for those that that would not already know academically, one of the ways queer theory is understood is it's drawing attention to the way in which we culturally condition ourselves to accept what is uh, male, what is female. And so, you know, when you grow up, you're being conditioned to say, this is what a woman is. This is what a man is, right? So, (laughs) If if you're a woman who likes wearing pants, but you're in the South or I don't know somewhere where your church and other people are telling you no, you should be wearing dresses. That's a why do you wear boys' clothes? Or or um, if you find yourself to be more having characteristics that are common with, or at least you perceive to be common with, a lot of men, and you're like, well, I'm gender fluid because I don't have all the characteristics in common with the other girls I'm friends with, right? Queer theory would be like, well, no, there, there's no such thing as a male that's objective or a female that's objective. You, If you understand yourself as female and you have those characteristics, then that's the kind of female you represent. But what I think a lot of youth don't sense is that that's an option that like, oh, I am this, but I do it this way. And so to them, it's like, well, I don't fit in that box and I don't fit in that box. So I'm, I'm the other. And that's a problem because again, it's not, it's not that they necessarily are what some other individuals would really identify as gender fluid. It's that they're almost giving us an indication of the critique of how backwards our society is in terms of how we keep enforcing Uh, stereotypical ideas of what is or is not uh, masculine or feminine, you know, for myself, I'll be, you know, super vulnerable here. I would do a bunch of TikTok videos and I would have a ton of evangelical Christians come on and say, are you gay? Are you gay? And like, I mean, I have nothing against LGBTQ community. I'm just really straight in terms of a spectrum. I think I'm pretty much on as far to the extreme of what you would consider heterosexual as you get. Um, and so, you know, it's fine. That, that's how I am. That's my sexuality. Great. But not everyone sees that. And so I have people coming on saying you're really feminine. You are not masculine. You you, you all kinds of I'll have other people, though, be like, what? That's strange. You seem perfectly normal. And I, I wouldn't have gotten that. Okay, that's that's you know when really queer theory began to click to me on an empathetic level which was like okay yeah this is silly right different people have different expectations of what they think is masculine or feminine and when you have those ingrained as rules then what ends up happening is you're affecting all kinds of younger generations who are like well i don't i'm not like them so i guess i'm not that Instead of recognizing that, in fact, the whole need and necessity of thinking you need to fit those boxes, that doesn't stem from the Bible, that doesn't stem from uh, God, that stems from human society and, and culture that shifts and moves. Like In, in America, wear a skirt and, and you're a guy and a bunch of people will give you weird eyes. Go to Scotland, wear a skirt, everybody's applauding you. It is a very different situation. Go to Asia. And see what male models look like when they're walking, not on a runway, just in general out in the fashion districts. And they're not uh, what an American would think or go to the Middle East and see men kissing each other and go, oh, no, Uh, no, you're misunderstanding. Because, again, masculinity for them involves being able to kiss other men. And again, it's like, it's those problems that queer theory draws our attention to that illustrate why the Adventist church and other Christian churches struggle so much with how to make sense of LGBTQ individuals or the community or issues, because really they're so stuck in a lot of cultural baggage of what they think is tied in with all these things that they're unable to get to the real heart or core of any of these things.
0: Well, I hope you all enjoyed today's conversation with Matthew Cortman. we will be talking more with Matthew in the future in the coming weeks. In the meantime, you can check out his YouTube channel, Matthew Cortman. Amalgo Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I have been hearing from you all, and I appreciate your questions as well as your personal stories. Many of you have shared your own journey navigating what queer theology means to you, what your coming out process has been, relationships, church participation, and if you'd like any of your personal stories to be shared on air, please write to me at Kendra Arsena with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship. And be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectre Magazine and SDA Kinship International.